We're continuing our study, uh, Leviticus, the cost of holiness. Uh, we'll be in chapter 25 today. Uh, so again, if you would open up your Bibles, you can get there. Uh, but I'm sure most of you have probably never heard of Edith Macefield. Uh, her life is, is really kind of fascinating. Uh, a lot of it is surrounded in speculation, though. So I have to just kind of put that out there. Uh, but Edith was born in 1921 in Oregon. Uh, and during World War II, she is said to have gone over to Europe to help the war effort. Uh, Edith has said that she was able to speak multiple languages. She went to the American government and basically said, what can I do to go and help? And they essentially said to her, you know, you're under 18, you're too young, you're not old enough. I'm sorry, we can't have you go and serve your country. Well, this did not deter Edith. She got her uncle to take her over. Her uncle connected her with some uh, British government officials. They looked at her and said, we think we can use you, Edith. And so what they did is they essentially set her up as a spy in Nazi Germany uh, to the point where Edith herself has said that she actually met Adolf Hitler while continuing to try to undermine uh, the German advancement during World War II. Well, eventually Edith was found out. She was sent to a concentration camp uh, where Edith says that she escaped with a bunch of children. After the war was over, she continued to work with kids. She set up some orphanage, actually turning one of the castles in Europe into an orphanage. Um, but again, a, a lot of this is all from the words of Edith uh, herself. Uh, so, you know, what level of truth is what people sometimes wonder with the story that she shares. Now, the, the real interesting thing, though, about about Edith is not so much what happened during the war, but when she came back to America. Uh, Edith had owned a home. It was a thousand square foot home. It was a 108 year old farmhouse. Uh, and it had been in the family for years. And as time began to progress, a lot of the mills that surrounded her house uh, were starting to go away. And so in, 19, uh, in 2006, Edith was approached by a developer by the name of Barry Martin and essentially said, Edith, we would like to purchase your home to make way for a mall. Well, Edith was intent on living in that house until she died and she continued to fight the realtor uh, for as long as she possibly could. And many of you may feel this sounds very much like the story of Up. Well, you can see there on the top is uh, the, the, the movie Up, and on the bottom is actually Edith's home. So they actually literally built the mall around her house. Now, unlike the story of Up, where there was some tension between uh, the character uh, and the mall developer, uh, Edith actually became quite friendly with Barry Martin. He actually started to look in on her. He'd check in, see how she was doing. He would take her to doctor's appointments. And when Edith passed in 2008, she actually willed that house to Barry Martin uh, because of the relationship that they had developed over time. Now, the story of Up was in development before this actually came out, um, but it's a story about land 
and the value of relationship to the land and the value of relationship to one another. You know, history has always saw land as a basis of wealth, that if you owned property, you would be able to be considered wealthy. You'd have a chance to make a good living for yourself. Uh, and so whoever controlled those resources typically were the ones that would prosper. But as we go through Leviticus 25, God's going to lay out some specifics for the Israelites about this land to which they uh, were promised and the land that, that they owned. And on the surface, when if you read through this chapter, it very much will sound probably just like some radical call to communism or socialist idea. But if we dig deeper, we really are going to understand the heart of God and what we're going to find it that this is not about some sort of political ideology, but more so that God's love and care for his children and his people are going to shine forth as we go through this. Uh, and so, again, if we are willing to heed to the words of Christ, not only do we find blessing and joy, but in this case, what we are going to find is the idea of Jubilee. And so that's what we'll be talking about uh, as we go through this message here. So uh, Leviticus 25 builds off the idea of the Sabbath week. Again, the Sabbath was every seven days uh, where God rested. Uh, and the idea of the number seven is a sign of completion. Uh, it's symbolic of the sense of perfection. Uh, and in Genesis chapter two, right, it says the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Right. So God finishes creation and then God rests. OK, so that's the idea of where the Sabbath comes out, that God calls his people to rest and take this time uh, for, a, for a break. Uh, and this relationship becomes, again, a sign that God had made a promise to his people and that he would care for his people. OK, so we're, we're building off that idea. Now, this Sabbath week is actually going to then grow into what God is going to call the Sabbath year. So let me read Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. It said, The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and, sow, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your unintended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant and maidservant, and the hired worker and the temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land, Whatever the land produces may be eaten. So, so every seven years, God said, listen, you know, just like on, on every seven days, you're going to sit and you're going to rest. Every seven years, you're going to not work. You're not, you're not going to sow. You're not going to prune. You're not going to gather. You're not going to reap. You're not going to do any of that. You're just going to rest. And when it talks about this idea of reaping, it's the concept of don't pick food and start to store it. So what were you allowed to do? You could go to a vine and you could pick something off the vine and eat it because you were hungry. But I couldn't gather all of that food and then go, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to get ahead on life and I'm going to store all this extra stuff. That, that wasn't the idea. 
And not only, again, was this for the individual, but this was for his servants and it was for all of the livestock as well. So that way the animals wouldn't have to be tied to, to go out and plow the fields as well. They would have a chance at a season of rest. So every seven years, God said, let the land grow on its own and you can eat whatever comes out of it. Okay? Now, he's going to continue further here. And he's going to take this year of rest, the Sabbath year, and he's going to expand it to what he calls the year of Jubilee. So now let's continue in verse 8. It says, count off seven Sabbaths of years, seven times seven years, so that seven Sabbaths of years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout the land, consecrate the 50th year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to his own family property and each to his own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the unintended vines. For it is a jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields." So God says, now what we're going to do is every seven sevens, we're, we're going to blow the trumpet. We're going to have a, a Sabbath year. And that 50th year, we're going to have a super Sabbath. That's what we're going to have. We're going to continue to rest. We're going to continue to not eat anything. The animals are going to take a break. But we're, we're going to do something a little bit different in that year. And in verse 10, what does it say? It says, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. So, so what does that mean? Uh, a proclamation of jubilee, a proclamation of freedom to, to return the property, to, re, to return people to their clan. Well, in those days, again, it wasn't uncommon that someone could find themselves impoverished, right? You're, you're talking about an agricultural, a herding type of society, that it wasn't uncommon that there may have been a bad season, there may have been some sort of plague that in, it, it impacted your crops, the harvest, and so individuals would have very quickly found themselves in a bind. And they would have had to figure out some way to have to pay off the debt to those individuals that they owed it to. And in verses, uh, and, and so what would happen often is that people would naturally say, well, I can't pay you back, but what I have is I have this land. I'm going to sell you this land. Or in really bad cases, I've sold my land to you that literally the only thing I have left to my name is literally my name itself. That I will sell myself to you to pay off this debt. Okay, so, th so that's the condition that some of these Israelites may have found themselves in. Now, verses uh, 15 and 16, it says, You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. And they are to sell on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you will increase the price. And when the years are few, you are to decrease the price. Because what is really being sold to you 
is the number of crops. So essentially, that if, if I was getting close to the year of Jubilee, right, I, I couldn't charge somebody as much money or pay off as much as the debt perhaps that I would have owed. But if it was like year number one and I was going to sell that land, I could have sold that land for a lot of money because that would all be based on getting to that year of Jubilee. Now, before we go any further, I, I want us to understand something here. People, again, will often use the Bible and talk about how the Bible uh, is incorrect and it condones things like slavery and bigotry. Let me just stop and say that is not true at all, because it can be very easy to read this passage and think that idea. So when you come in context here in these verses and you see the word slave, please understand it's actually a better translation is to use the word servant. Okay, though some of your translations may use the word slave, it's better translated as servant because there's a different context with that. Uh, and if you look in verse 39, it says, if one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you he is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. So already in that context, the scriptures is already saying there's a different notion about how we are treating those people that would have to sell themselves off to you uh, into, into a, a sense of debt. Now, why does the Bible talk about it like it's some sort of piece of property? Well, again, the context right now, it's some sort of business transaction that's going on. This doesn't devalue the person themselves. All it's simply doing is putting the person in the context of a business deal, right? So, so don't look at it and go, well, they're talking about people like their property. Yes, because they're talking about it as a business deal, not actually saying that person has no value or that person has no actual worth. Also, this is a voluntary and willing business deal, right? Oftentimes in our country, the context is, you know, that, that slaves have been ripped out of their home countries against their will. They've been kidnapped and they've been forced into that. That is not the case of what is going on. Again, this is a willing decision by somebody to say, I owe a debt and this is how I'm going to pay my debt off. And lastly, when people sold themselves, they were to be treated with respect. We see that in verse 43. It says, do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Exodus 21 Deuteronomy 15 also provides some instructions about how these servants were to be treated in a manner that was to be kind to the point that if actually they were abused or oppressed in any sort of way, God gave them the permission to be set free from that type of relationship. Okay, So again, the Bible in no way is justifying slavery in the context that we understand. Okay, So I wanted to, to make sure that we put that out there as we work through this further. And furthermore, here's another thing, that if you ended up in this predicament, there were three options for you to try to get either your land back or to get yourself out of this actual relationship here. Now, verses 25 to 28 is going to talk about in the context of land. Verses 47 to 54 is going to talk about it in the context of the person or the servant. So they parallel the ideas. I'm just going to read from the part about the land in verses 25 to 28, but we can connect that with the person itself. So three options here. Option number one, verse 25. 
If one of your fellow servants becomes poor and sells some of the property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have been sold. And this is where we get the idea of what we call a kinsman redeemer. You'll see that throughout scripture. That again, if you had to sell your land or sell yourself, somebody in your family, your nearest relative, could come and basically pay off your debt. So in my context, I have an older brother that if I went into this, I would basically go to my brother first and say, hey, Bob, listen, I'm in this predicament. Can you help me out? And if he's not able to make do, then I'm, then I'm looking for you know, my parents, I'm looking for my uncles, my cousins, anybody that might have the option to be able to afford this to pull me back out of this predicament. So that's the first option. The second one is verse 26 and 27. It says, however, if there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, They are to determine the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. So one of the other things that happens is that as people are working to pay off their debt, it wasn't uncommon that they would actually get some sort of wage that they can continue to live off of. And so if if a servant worked really well, there was a lot of prospering of the harvest, you know, the the owner looked at them and found favor upon them and continued to give them more and more. That person at some point could then turn around and say, look, I now have enough money to buy my land back and I would like to go and do that. And that was an expectation that that owner would then sell the property back to the original owner. It's kind of like how a mortgage works with with our houses right now, right? You know, the bank owns your house, you pay the monthly mortgage, and then eventually you come to a point where you get to tell the bank, listen, I've paid everything off, now this property is mine, okay? And so all of that value of the land that the bank owned is now transferred over to you, okay? So that's the second piece. And if you couldn't do any of those, then we had option number three, which is verse 28. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in Jubilee and they can go back to their property. So every 50th year, what that means is that land that was sold, the owner of that possession of that land, or if he owned any of those people, would literally say, here you go, you get your land back. You are no longer a servant to me. You are now free again. And again, when we first read something like that, you're like, wait a minute. You're telling me that I buy this piece of land from somebody And then year 50 comes along and I just have to give it back to them? Yes. This person says they can't pay off a debt and so they're going to work for me and then year 50 comes along and I just have to let them go? Yes, that's exactly what the scriptures are saying. Well, that doesn't make any sense, Adam. I purchased the land. It should be mine. And I think when we have thoughts like that, That's where it begins to expose the nature of our heart, doesn't it? Because what we don't see is a person, but all what we see is what I'm getting from that person. And it becomes a very selfish, greedy sense of life. 
But what we first need to realize about this is that these individuals did not own the land. They did not own the people. Take a look there at verse 23. It says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. And verse 42, because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. See, the land, the people, none of that belongs to you. Though you may think it's yours, the reality is it does not, and it belongs to God. We are simply stewards of what God has given us. And what does God say about this land? And what does he say about the people? Verse 17, he says, don't take advantage of them. You are to fear the Lord. Verse 24, I want redemption must be provided for people. Verse 36, don't take interest of any kind from your countrymen. Don't, don't charge them in a way that's going to continue to put them into a position of hardship and difficulty. But Adam, I purchased the land. No, it's not your land. It's God's land. So we, we need to think about it like I am not the boss. I am not the owner of this. What these people were, were simply the hired manager of God's property. And as the manager, you may go to God and say, listen, God, the way that you're running this business, I've got a better financial scheme. I've got a better way that we can make more money off of this, God. And that may be true, right? Not talking compared to God, but let's just say you may go to your boss or your owner and say, I have a better idea. But if your boss or your owner doesn't want to go with your idea, that is their choice. You don't have any right to cry injustice or cry foul because it is the owner's property who gets to decide whatever they want to do with that. You know, God called us to manage the land. He didn't call us to be authority over our fellow man. It's kind of like, uh, remember the story of the Christmas Carol, right? Ebenezer Scrooge. Well, in the story, before Scrooge has his own business, he works for a man by the name of Fezziwig. And Fezziwig is this jovial guy and he's all about throwing a party and, and, and Scrooge and Jacob Marley work for him. And they're like, Fezziwig's an idiot. He, he can't even keep his books right. Look at all of this money he's squandering. And, and so they approach Fezziwig and, and they're like, what are you doing? We can make you so much more money. Just, just sell us the business. And Fezziwig's response to them is a good verbal lashing. And he says, look, uh, this is mine and I'm going to do what I want with it. And so be it if I don't make a lot of money. And so be it if I lose my business. But I will not lose the business of helping my fellow man. And what does Scrooge go on to do? He gets his own business and he runs it in a miserly sort of way. And that's the idea. That this land is not the Israelites, it's God's. And God is telling them this is how the land is supposed to be run. So why does God want it this way? 
Why does God set up these rules in this year of Jubilee? Well, there's three areas I want us to think about. The first one is economically. This was a way for God to provide for his people. This was a way to ensure that his children are being taken care of that they would be able to live off the land and they would be able to enjoy it. Now, this doesn't mitigate their responsibility to, to do what was right and care for it, but this was his ongoing, eternal way of making sure they had land and they had land to live off of. You know, and God intended it for some sort of level of social equity. See, see, God never intended that one of his children would rule over the other one in some sort of medieval fashion where that when they can't pay their debts, now it becomes a system of the haves and the have nots. God never intended for that. God never wanted one to become vastly rich while one of his other children suffered in dire poverty. And it was a reminder to them of where they put their faith. Are you going to put your faith in the bountiful harvest and the riches that it produces? Or are you going to put your faith and trust in me? Because it was God who made the harvest grow. It was God who gave the land. And God saw it that they would recognize his authority over them. Look at verses 18 through 22. When God speaks about the year of Jubilee, he says to them, he says, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. And while you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest comes in the ninth year. I could imagine for a farmer who's like, wait, you're, you're going to tell me not to do anything with my field. I could imagine there's a lot of apprehension and worry. Well, what am I supposed to do? God says, well, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you for the next year. Yeah, but, but what about the year after that? Because now we have a whole year where you're going to provide for this one, but, but I won't have anything while I'm harvesting the field. It's going to take a whole other year for crops to grow. God, what am I supposed to do? And what does God say? God says, I will take care of you. He says, in year number six, I will give you such a harvest. It will carry you through three years. So for that one year, you can sit and do nothing and I will continue to feed you. And when you go back to work and you're waiting for the crops to grow, you will have so much food that I will continue to feed you. And then when year nine rolls around, you'll be able to eat off those vines that you sowed and planted again. So God is saying, will you just trust me? Because if you're willing to heed to the obedience of my commands, you will live, what does it say? You will live there in safety. And it's a provision for them to temporarily escape the curse, to have to toil by the sweat of their brow, to give them rest and relaxation so they don't work themselves to death. So one, God provides economically. 
Two, God also provides socially for his people. The foundation of society, guys, is the home. It's the parents and their children. That is the way that God has established the foundation of how society is to work. And so as Christians, as believers, we need to be extremely attuned to what is going on in the culture and the world around us. And anything that attempts to deconstruct or destroy the nature of the family that way God has intended needs to be fought against. And God lays out some ideas about how that works. And what does he do? God creates man and woman to complement one another, to be in a harmonious relationship and to be married with one another. And then in Ephesians 6, it talks about how parents are, are to, to raise and treat their children and how their children are to obey and respect their parents. And in Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. God said to the parent, he said, it is your responsibility to pass on the faith, to pass on the word of God, to pass on the knowledge of who I am to your children. It is the job of the parents. It is not my job as the pastor to parent your children. It is not the school system to parent your children. It is not the Sunday school teacher to parent your children. It is not some sort of Bible app whose job is to parent your children. It is your job to parent your children in the ways of God. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that we do not come around and support each other. But if you are looking for me to fix your children and teach them all about God while you idly sit by, that is not a biblical notion. But why does this idea of the year of Jubilee fit to this context. John 13, 34 tells us to love one another as Christ has loved us. What does a family do? It loves each other. It cares for each other, right? And, and here's the thing. When land was sold to somebody else, when a person had to go into debt to somebody else, you know what it destroyed? It destroyed the connection of the family. And God made sure that those families would always have a chance to be back near each other, to love and care for each other the way that God intended. And furthermore, we go back to Genesis chapter 17. God makes a, a promise again to Abraham, right? And in verse chapter 17, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and to be the God of the descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession and the descendants after you. I will be their God. God made a covenant promise to his people. He said, this land is yours forever. 
And so God ensured that as this land came back, that it came back to the people that God had promised. And this land became a covenant sign of relationship between them and God, that they were his people and he was their God. So this was just yet another way of God confirming his promise to his people. And lastly, theologically, what do we understand about the nature of God and who God is? Well, in verse 25 or chapter 25, it uses the word redeem. Redeem is another word which means to buy back. It's used 10 times. And the word jubilee is used 14 times in this single chapter. Redeem, redeem, buy back, buy back. There will be jubilee, there will be jubilee, there will be jubilee. God said there was a chance to buy back your property. There was a chance that you could be bought back out of that indebtedness and that slavery. And God said a natural period, and he said, you know what we're going to do every 50 years? I'm going to buy back my people. Every 50 years on the Day of Atonement, they will blow the trumpet. And just keep that in mind, because we are building towards the Day of Atonement and why that becomes the most sacred and holy days for them. On the Day of Atonement, you will blow the trumpet and that trumpet sound will proclaim freedom for people. And that becomes a proclamation of freedom for us, for our debt that we owed. It's a debt that we never could have paid back. It's a debt that was caused because our sins severed the relationship between us and a holy God. And the result is that severed relationship and our disobedience, we were to be cast into the perils of hell. But again, God in his goodness and love said, that is not what I desire. I want to buy back my people from that. So in his goodness and his love, what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to bear our burden and to bear our punishment. And when he went to the cross and he cries out, it is finished. Again, what that translates to is the debt has been paid. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We have been justified by his grace. He freely gave to us his son on the cross to buy us back from the debt that we are owed because of the sins that we engage in. It was Christ who becomes our kinsman redeemer, our nearest relative that had the first right to buy us back and he chose it for us. And how did he buy it back? He bought it back with his life and his blood on the cross. So when the trumpet sounds on the day of atonement in the year of Jubilee, it is a joyous celebration. 
It is a time to feast. It is a time to, to praise our holy God. Because when the trumpet sounds for us, it is also a reminder that our debt has been paid and we have been freed from the bonds of sin and slavery. And it is a reminder to us that the cross is our jubilee. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we could look at a concept of land and, and being forced to give it back. And Lord, we could be so clueless as to what any of that means. But God, everything about you screams out your love for us. It screams out your willingness to buy us back, to be in that relationship with you. Lord, let us look at the cross and hear those words of Jubilee, proclamations of freedom that is ours. We were indebted and you paid that debt. So let us be people of joyous celebration. Let us be people that go into the world shouting the trumpet call that freedom is extended to each and every one of us. And they don't have to wait for 50 years, but all they need to do is call upon the name of Jesus Christ and they will be saved, Lord. Let us spread that message of hope and joy for all times. Amen.